Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. And then with that, we will get down to business. I spent two uh, fairly long uh, talks trying to give the background because that's what historians do. Anybody can read a book and you can read an account uh, right or wrong. Uh, after all, we weren't there. And... Uh, it's not exactly history. History, you try to put it into some kind of a context. You get it? So if you simply tell me you were born in this and this year and all the rest of it, it means something. But if you tell me you're born in Forest Park or Lower Park Heights and this is time and next door to you lives so-and-so and this is where you went to show or didn't and this is what was going on at that time or not, then all of a sudden you get a fuller picture and you start to flesh out the uh, little details. We are stuck with a very famous story in Jewish history, a uh, very embarrassing one. Everybody got egg over their face. Everybody got egg over their face. And the accounts are not clear. You'll be shocked to hear. And there's no such thing as an official history of Shabtai Tzvi. Uh, both sides end up suppressing a lot of information when the whole theological bubble bursts. Both sides tell lies about each other and about, the, you know, they, they swing the story their own way, just as every one of us do. If I ask you a question about your family or something you really care about, Everybody lies like a trooper. And there's no question that uh, this happens. It's become very hard to pick out the facts, such as we can. And there's no hard and fast way of doing so. So you're just going to accompany me uh, tonight through a uh, minefield. And we're going to do the best we can. I uh, spent two, uh, over two, I guess two and a half hours uh, trying to give a background. Because without that, it doesn't make any sense. I didn't even finish, but I did most of it. And you saw how complicated, those of you who were here, saw how complicated it is. It's just the subject of messiness, of a Mashiach. And before the Kabbalah enters the public sphere, as it were. And the lack of clarity. The Jewish religion, once again, is not a theological religion with, with ideological precision, you know, that you know, we believe in very hard and fast kinds of uh, you know, doctrines. Every time somebody tried to do that, like the Rambam, the others knocked it down. As I mentioned last time, the Rambam says the belief in the Mashiach is one of the 13 principles. And Chazdei Kreska says, no, it's not. <laughs> you know? And the Barbanel says, no, it's not. And so you end up with that kind of a situation. All this got intensively uh, more complicated with, with the appearance of the Kabbalah because in Kabbalistic Messianism, the focus in Kabbalah in general it's not on the physical world, but the metaphysical world. I'll say it again. They're not really that interested in the Zohar, the Kisiyarizal, and the other things of what goes on in the world of the physical. In the physical sense, why'd you catch a cold? You had germs. In the metaphysical sense, the heck with that. Why'd you catch a cold? <laughs> you know, what was the reason God hit you with a cold that week? Different way of looking at things. If you want to take it in a broader spectrum, in, in, in physical terms, historical terms, What's the cause of the Civil War? Oh, the slavery issue, the, the states' rights, you know, the tariff. Metaphysically, why did God choose to strike America with this bloody internecine war at this and this time? That's a different type of question, a different kind of answer. Um, and so, when we get to Kabbalistic Messianism, 
the language that you find is one that focuses intensively in the notion of tikkun. And tikkun, of course, means something was broken, you're trying to be in it. So what is it that's, that's broken? The world. And this takes us out of the story of Israel for a moment and into the story of mankind. Because we get so focused on the Jewish experience, because we're Jewish, that we forget that the Bible discusses before the Jews ever came along, the human race. Oh my goodness, look how lousy the human race is today. They're doing a very good job of destroying each other, destroying the environment, destroying the world, all the rest of it. How did that happen? I thought God was a nice guy, created a nice world. What happened? Well, it's a constant story. And as we all know the story, Adam and Eve are put into paradise, and then they screw up, and they get thrown out of paradise, and they're trying to get back. It's kind of interesting that at the same time Shabtai Tzvi appears in the 1600s, what are they writing in England? Paradise lost, paradise regained. Isn't that interesting? So um, the Jews are not the only ones focusing on these kinds of themes. But in the case of Jewish thought, Machshavet Yisrael, especially when the Kabbalah intermingles with general theosophy and philosophy, the exile of the Jews from Israel ends up paralleling the exile of Adam and Eve from paradise. The goal of mankind ever since has been to re-enter paradise. But it has one do so. But as long as the B'nai Yisrael are not living normal Eretz Yisrael, that is a litmus test or a sign that the world is screwed up. This is the famous writings of the Maral, who lives in the 1500s, and who therefore takes the Jewish historical specific ethnic experience and universalizes it to say it's of literally cosmic and universal import, and you nations of the world, if you want to follow the Maral, if the United Nations wants to solve all the problems of the world, get off of Israel's back. Understand? And you say, how does that work? I'm talking metaphysically, tomorrow I'll say. If you know the Bible, if mankind wants to get back in the Garden of Eden, let the Jews first get back into Israel. And then it'll, it'll spin out. The specifics of how it spins out, they're not interested in. Maybe there'll be new scientific discoveries. Maybe they'll land something on the moon. Maybe they'll come with new inventions. You know, who cares? That I leave to the mundane and stupid world of science and technology. But the real motivating and, 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 and uh, you know, uh, causative factors lie in the world of the invisible. That's this whole mode of thought. That's called Kabbalah. Now, how does one do this? How are the Jews able to re-enter paradise? How are you supposed to fix the broken situation of the Jews, which will then lead to fixing, in some sense, the broken situation of the human race? So no more war, no more ISIS. This is not a bad idea. If we took all the money we're spending on the weapons, but you know, we all know this, right? It's not necessary today for anybody in the world anywhere to be hungry. That's a, isn't that sad? It's not necessary for anybody in the world today to go without shoes. We have the stuff. We have extra. But it's not going to work out. So how do you fix this? Well, if you're a Kabbalist, um, through Torah and Mitzvahs, and not through Maccabean Wars, the answer is not going to be through uh, battles with armies. It may express itself physically, perhaps along the way in that way, but that's not the real motive force that's going to do it. What you believe over there, that the primary realm of activity is the metaphysical realm. And as I mentioned last week, the constitutive elements of the, of the metaphysical realm are the Bible, the Torah, and the Mitzvahs. And by the way, it's very racist. The guy don't count. So it depends what every Jewish man, every Jewish woman does. Every time she benches lift, has unbelievable consequences. Failure to bench lich has a different set of consequences. Every time he says Shema 
or puts in tefillin, or helps a little old lady across the street, or whatever the case is, right? All the different kind of misses. You don't realize what it is you're doing. And it's not simply you're fulfilling the word of God in some philosophical sense and listening to orders. That's good too, as they say, you know. Nothing wrong with punching the clock. That's good too. But it's a lot more than that. And if it's done in the right amount, in the right time, in the right way, it will lead to uh, literally cosmic consequences beyond your imagination in a positive or negative sense, hopefully positive sense. Now I'll be returning to this more later on. Um, one more piece of this. Quality counts more than quantity in these mitzvahs. This is the world of the Arizal. Right? Especially when he comes out, he has what they call the Sefer Kavanos. Right? And he doesn't mean Kavanos like you say you have Kavanos when you're davening, that your mind doesn't wander something else. It's much more than that. It's architecture of pipeworks, what they call Tinoros, and a whole uh, huge complicated um, metaphysical structure of uh, channels and things that are going this way and that way. Um, and you, it's like a Rube Goldenberg machine. That's the best I can say. And so when you do a mitzvah, or nevera, or nevera, you don't realize. You trigger this off like a Rube Goldberg thing, which sets off this, which sets off this, which sets off this, which, off this, which led to an earthquake somewhere, or not. If you want to put it in a nice way, and I'm saying that I don't mean to be funny when I say this. Put it in a nice way. You had opportunity to say Lush and Hara. And you say, you know, I'm not going to do it. Because of that, the bullet missed the guy in the Gaza War. And you say like this, what do I have to do with that guy? If you knew how the pipe works work, you knew your soul or whatever, something like that is connected to that individual, and so on and so forth. Now look at the other way. You idiot, you said Lush and Hara different, the guy got killed. Can you live with yourself? It's a different way of thinking. That's what I'm trying to get across. It's a completely different way of thinking. And as I said before, transfers the realm of conflict, significant conflict, from the physical to somewhere else. Okay? And that the, uh, the real uh, weapons and tools that end up becoming the constitutive elements of the Jewish religion, which are the Torah and the Mitzvahs, and especially the Arisa. If you, if, look what I'm doing. If I do a particular Mitzvah, for example, and I know how to guide it through this network with thoughts, I want this to do this, and I want this to do this. None of us, nobody does this today. I mean, nobody regular. If I do this, this, and this, if you do raise your hand now, and I'm going to see a liar. You know, the, uh, so if you do this, this, or that, um, it actually get more bang for the buck. So, you know, here's two ladies at bench lift, as I said before. One does it with thinking just about her family. The other one does it with... Uh, so each one is good, but this one only gets you know, two miles to the gallon. And this one gets 50 miles to the gallon, so to speak. That's the basic theory uh, behind all these sorts of things. Okay? Now, in other words, by the 17th century, by the 1600s, in other words, Maimonidean notions of an empiricist messianism rooted in the physical world have been displaced by Kabbalistic notions of a messianic process whose real struggle takes place in the metaphysical world. Once that struggle is successfully concluded, it will then manifest itself in the physical world. So let's say, for argument's sake, we need to get the mitzvah 4,753,201 uh, and you get there. Ding! Amazing things start to happen. You understand? Amazing. The Palestinians get up and they say, I guess, oh, it wasn't Palestine, it was a mistake. It was Pennsylvania. We, you know, <laughs> people won't believe it. You understand? The Russians will say, oh, uh, you know, we owe you money. It'd be unbelievable. And people will be astonished and wonder how it was. But those of us who know will 
just nod our heads knowingly. You see? That's the world we're talking about up here, right? All this leads us to our hero, Shabtai Tzvi, who lived to be who lived 50 years, 1626, 1676. So he didn't live a long life at all. And uh, the whole story of Shabtai Tzvi took place in the first 40 years of his life. So this is, right? I mean, it's, it's just good to keep in mind we're dealing basically with a young individual. Um, the question which will preoccupy us is not that how he how did he persuade himself? That's not a kash at all. I mean, the world is full of people who walk around saying that they're Mashiach. Rather, how and why did he get universal traction in so short a time? From India to Italy to England, from Yemen to Lithuania, from Morocco to Mezhebosh. That's really happened. And, and, and very quickly, too, and there was no telegraph at that time. So how did it happen? On all of it, you'll, you'll see. Not tonight, but next time, that... Uh, it spread like wildfire in the, in the course of a year. Less than a year. How did that happen in those days? You see, the excitement that swept through the Jew was electric. You understand? Excuse me. How did this happen? For me to be of any service to you here tonight, I can only use the tools of an historian and try to look for context. And as I say, try to, you know, like Sherlock Holmes, re put together the pieces of a puzzle and connect the dots in the correct way. There's nobody knows for sure. Because I'll say it again. There are all kind of memoirs that they lie like crazy, they exaggerate like crazy, the from lie in a from way, the non-from lie in a non-from way, the modern historians, they, I, I, I promise you, you know, grads just make whole things up, and so does a lot of other people. It just leads, it, it, it's, it's what happens, you understand? Gershon Shalom is supposed to be the big expert, but a friend of mine is a professor in Israel, so oh, they call Gershon Shalom book the famous roman, you know, the famous novel, <laughs> you see? So you end up with all these kind of uh, uh, problems. Shabtai Tzvi, let's go with what we know at least, at least what we think we know. So Shabtai Tzvi is born in uh, 1626 in Izmir in Turkey, on Tishabov. Whoa. Whoa. What do we know about Tishabov? The Mashiach, my friends, is born in Tishabov. True. And there's a long-standing, way before Shabtai Tzvi, there's a long-standing folk tradition that the Mashiach really is going to pop, born in Tishabov, is really going to pop up in Tishabov. Since the time of the Sefer Hamanhig, that's as far back as I can trace it, and that's a reshown back in the 1100s, I think, uh, the rabbis, because you always have a fight, or you have many fights, between uh, book formal Judaism on the one hand and folk Judaism on the other. You get it? You know the old story, the rabbi says to his wife before Pesach, you don't have to clean this, you don't have to clean that, and she says, well, you have made my whole house comments think about listening to you, you know? There's, everybody knows that. So in other words, there's the folk way of doing Judaism, the other, a, a well-known folk way of doing Tisha B'Av. I don't know if you know this. <laughs> Maybe you do it, for all I know. What this is, that when it comes to uh, 1 o'clock, not only do you get up and, and, and you can sit on a chair, but you set the table like you would do for Friday night. Anybody do that? That's good. He says, uh, speaking as representative of book Judaism, because they all condemn this, right? But it's old... It's before Shabtai Tzvi, right? It goes back a thousand years. And it's this idea that hope springs eternal. The Ramban, when he had his debate with Pablo Cristiani back in 1263 in front of the King of Aragon in Barcelona, one of the things the guy sets up with the Ramban and the Pablo Cristiani had been Shiva guy, you know, so you know to learn. And he says, don't you know, you say the Messiah has not yet come, we say the Messiah has come. I have a Beferisha, Medrash Rabbah in Echa, that says that on the day the temple was born, the Messiah was born. And the cow was uh, lowing, and then the Arab said, the, the, the base of was destroyed, and then it lowed again. He says, no, they can hit your, 
cow back up because the Mashiach is born. I'm sure many of you have heard that. And so there you are. Now the Ramban just goes on to say like this. Well, just as he was born, didn't say he came, you know. Um, but this is an old idea. So the fact that Shabbat three happened to be born, by the way, like this here, on a Shabbos and a, a, a Tisha B'Av, it doesn't get better now from the Kabbalistic point of view. That's why they call him Shabbat. Huh? <laughs> right? So he born on a Shabbos and on a Tisha B'Av. You, you, you see what I'm saying? So uh, uh, he's born in, in, in a very interesting place, uh, Izmir, the port of Smyrna or Izmir in uh, Turkey, which was uh, a new community. Uh, been founded a few years before his birth. It's a dynamic Jewish community. His time was 6,000 people, which is a lot in the old days. Full of economic activity and rabbinical culture. Basically, the Ottoman Empire, uh, the Turks aren't good at business. They have subject races like the Jews, the Armenians, and the Greeks who are good at business. They uh, get them to be the bees that produce the honey, and then they squeeze their taxes. Out of them, the Turkish government, they, you know, they put dumped a bunch of Jews in this place, and then, and it was uh, on the Aegean Sea, and it was a good seaport, and um, and it took off. It took off. I don't want to take do tweet the technical over here. All during the 1600s, there was a constant war between the Ottoman Empire and Venice. Uh, it's amazing to think that the little Fashtunkin of Venice was a was a world power and fought the Turks and held them off for the whole Christian Europe. But they went for a hundred years' war. People don't know it, and. Uh, in the course of all this, the, the Venetian navy used to blockade a lot of times the Dardanelles and Constantinople. So they needed other ports, you get it? So Smyrna and Izmir became very successful commercial ports. So it's a big Jewish community by the standard of that time. They're all Sephardim. They're all kind of different types of Sephardim. Some of them are BTs, in other words, Moranos who escaped from Portugal and, and ran over here. Uh, others are STs, Sephardi Tahor, meaning they never were BTs. They never uh, uh, pretend to be Catholic or anything like that. They're the, they're the true blue ones that left in 1492. All different types of communities. And you'll be shocked to hear Spider were not all from a cookie cutter. So they have several different communities. They all fight with each other. Cahillus Aragon, Cahillus Castilla, Cahillus Granada, Valencia, all that kind of business. And Cahillus Portugal. But in the Sephardi tradition, they make it work. Everybody gets together eventually in a Cahillah. Um, and there are seven different uh, communities that united eventually in one. And the father of Shabtai Tzvi is a Jew who, ta- who, who locates himself in this new economy. He is the Jew for English merchants, which means that the English do trading with the Ottoman Empire. Why not? And one of the new ports is Izmir. And if you're English, you don't know the Turkish language or all that kind of stuff. And so you can just imagine this. You get off the boat... The first time the English merchant shows up, or the French, or the Italian, or the German, or the Russian, or anybody else, get off the boat. You know, there's two or three types of people that are tugging at your uh, heels. One's uh, a Greek, one's an Armenian, one's a Jew. Uh, and what they end up doing, this is how life was lived. And the Greek says, for $50, I can introduce you to all the commercial entrepots and, you know, set you up in business, and I can be your interpreter, all the rest of it. The Greek says 50 bucks, the Armenian says 30 bucks, the Jew, Nebuchadnezzar say 10 bucks, but he gets it. So this, this is how it worked. And then he gets a client, and these are brokers, and that's how they made a living. That's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's locating yourself in the economy. The equivalent today would be somebody gets a job in the, in the computer business, you know, or, or on the internet. Now, um, so he comes from a not a poor family. When he's born, Shabbat you know, they're a middle class, uh, they're doing okay. The leading rabbi of the city... Rabbi Yosef Eskapa of Salonika, originally the famous Sephardi Goro, 
uh, we live in an Ashkenazi-centric kind of culture, uh, you know, Lithuanian-centric, I might even say. Uh, but this Friday night, you know, have famous uh, rabbis of their own in, in yesteryear, not only Rios of Cairo, and uh, Salonika was a very big port in Malcolm Torah, and they sent the rabbis to Smyrna. And so the bottom line is, uh, there's somebody, Choshev, over there. Uh, if this means anything, I doubt it will. Rabbi Yosef Isko is the Talmud Mubuk of the Mara Sasan. I don't think anybody knows who that is either. So anyway, the uh, the point is that Shabtai grows up in the city with the Jewish community. There's learning, there's yeshivas, there's schools. He ends up, you know, going to the Cheder and being successful there. He goes to the yeshiva as a teenager of the Rabbi Yosef Iskopa, which is a, uh, you know, like an advanced kind of a place. Uh, yeshiva means they learn every day in shul. They don't have like near Israel campus or something like that. You learn in a Sephardic synagogue. Um, he's an in-towner, <laughs> as we would say today. Okay, uh, which is uh, just interesting because you know the yeshivas have histories of out of towners and in towners. Um, he's also tall, dark, and handsome. All the sources agree. Okay, good looking guy, had a lot going for him in that regard. Somewhere in his teens, or probably around the age of 19 or 20, uh, he gets into Kabbalah. So that means here's a guy who's 14, 15, 16, 18 years old, 19 years old, and just learning Nigla, you know, Gemara, Postgame, in the Sephardic style, and fine. You know, uh, around the age of 1920, because uh, Ramosha Cordovero said that everybody, every male anyway, is uh, almost high of course if you don't start learning Kabbalah at the age of 20. The Sephardim had the opposite opinion of Ashkenaz. The Ashkenaz said, don't even touch this stuff till you're 40. The Sephardim don't agree with that at all. And they said, you know, you should, you, you should jump at this when you're 20. But anyway, that's what he does. Now, what does it mean, though, in the 1640s? Because he's born in 1626. So if he's 20 or thereabouts, it's the middle 1640s. So what does that mean uh, around there? What's there Kabbalistically? Well, uh, I mean, what books are there? What texts? Um, there's some of the Arizal stuff, which was floating around in stolen manuscripts, if you remember I told you about that last week. Um, the, does that mean that Shabtai Sri read them and understood them all? Did he take exams in them? Of course, none of that is true. By the late 1640s, the Zohar is around in published form. 62 years before Shabtai Tzvi was born, the Pope uh, threw a hand grenade into Judaism by authorizing the printing of the Zohar at the very moment that he was burning every copy of the Talmud. I think many of you were here a couple years ago when we did a series in the summer on the war against the Jewish book. He burned all the... The same Pope, that Mamza Paul IV, who went after every um, Gemara and uh, Rambam and things like this and burned them all. Burn them all. You, today, it's extremely rare to find an old printed book, you know, from, from way back when, uh, for that time. The same Pope, gave per- uh, 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 who hated the Jews, he gave perfect permission in Mantua in uh, 1558 and in uh, Cremona following a year later to publish the Zohar, which made it a published book, which is very rare in the Jewish world. And even though, if you look at it, I mean, you know, the, 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 the writing doesn't look that great to us. Compared to manuscripts, it's, it's night and day. Right? Instead of having to read somebody's handwriting, it's night and day. And so, uh, Shabtai Tzvi can read and does read the uh, Zohar. Uh, the nefarious plot of the Pope was quite successful. The Zohar was not only out of the closet, it was ubiquitous and readable. You understand, the Jews historically never wanted to print the Zohar or have that out for the public. Those who need to know will make it their business to know it. It's not, it better not, you know, it's not for everybody. Not everything has to go on YouTube, like we say today. You understand? Not everything has to be out there. But the Pope said that it should be. He, he meant to uh, disintegrate Judaism by doing that. By the 1640s, young Sephardic scholars like Shabtai Tzvi 
could access it and master it if you throw yourself into it, and he did, no question about it, as well as the other Kabbalah books that had been composed earlier but were now being printed, such as the works of uh, Moshe Cordovero, um, he, he's a name I mentioned last week, who was in Sfat in the 1500s, he had the uh, very interesting situation that even though he lived in Turkish Palestine, where in the Turkish Empire there's no printing press, he had some kind of a connection with Venice. And Venice was a very big millionaire who was also a famous rabbinic scholar, Menachem Azaria de Fano. Menachem Azaria from the town of Fano, who the Yishi world called Ramamipano. And, uh, and he, uh, on his own pocket, uh, published all the books of the Ramak. That's the, how they got out there. So uh, for the first time ever, if you're living in the late 15 and 1600s, the Kabbalah is actually accessible if you want. Before, it wasn't even out there. It was very hard to get a hold of it. So, um, it's a new world. According to what we're told, though, Shabtai Tzvi does not spend much time on the recent Kabbalistic literature. He kind of ignores the writings of the uh, Ari. He kind of ignores the writings of the Moshe Cordoviro. Instead, concentrates on uh, two books, the Zohar itself, and something called the Sefer Akone, which I don't think anybody's even heard of. Right? It's an old uh, text, and w- w- which, by the way, criticizes Gemara learning. <laughs> okay? And it's very interesting. And um, what I want to get across is that here's a guy who obviously is very self-confident, and he plunges and study Kabbalah himself without a Rebbe. Usually in the Kabbalistic tradition, as master to disciple. The Mishnah, by the way, thousands of years old, speaks of such terms. Right? That one should teach one, and one should teach two, never more than two, and so forth. To do it yourself, how do you know you're going to get right? But if somebody is very self-confident... Uh, or they have a Yetzirah, however you want to uh, do it, so they'll do it. And that's, uh, and that's what he does. But to be a Kabbalist, listen closely on what I'm about to say. To be a Kabbalist, it takes a lot more than just being an expert in Kabbalistic literature. Right? Somebody who knows what the books say doesn't make you a Makobal. It makes you a scholar of Kabbalistic literature. Right? Which is not the same thing as a Makobal. And... Um, a lot of it has to do with actual practice. Shabtai Tzvi gets into pietistic, Kabbalistic practices, which are not unique to the Kabbalah, but were a big feature of it. I'm speaking especially of the ascetism in fasts, immersions, and sigufim. Here's the Sefer Hasidim, which is not a Kabbalistic book, written at the time of the Rambam, Rabbi Huda Chassid in Germany. Here's the Hasidi Ashkenaz. I'm talking about, obviously, the modern Hasidim, I'm talking about the old, old days. In the 1100s, early 1200s, and uh, again, it's a contemporary Rambam, it's very different than the Rambam, and one of the things that's famous for the, for the pietistic approach is the emphasis on, um, shall we say, teshuva. Not teshuva, but teshuva. And by that, of course, I mean not repentance, but penance. Because teshuva is an English word, a Hebrew word, that could be translated in a number of different ways, and they're not identical. Repentance, of course, is, is inside. I did something wrong. I feel bad about it. I really do. And I, so I'm not going to do it again. In the old-fashioned language, it's charata all over, kabbalah asid. You know, you, you, you feel bad. You see, let's say I insulted you. And then afterwards, I said, what did I do? You know, so for, you apologize. And you really mean it. And, and then they move on, so to speak, you know. In other words, that's, that's what to repent, that's what teshuva con, consists of. Baloney. In the Middle Ages, they're going to say like this. You think you're getting off with that? <laughs> First, I want you to flagellate yourself. You know, hit yourself 500 times. 
They don't want you to, to, to take a couple of baths in ice-cold uh, river. Okay? Then if you did something really bad, I want you to cover your face with honey and get stung by bees. Shall I go on? You know, there's all kinds of things of this type. And this is Jewish. The whole books are written about this. And it's not Talmudic, by the way. Okay? It's not in the Gemara, uh, which is interesting. And that's why the Rambam has none of this, because the Rambam in Hilchos Teshuvah quotes entirely out of the Talmud. And the Talmud has none of this. The Talmud only has repentance done their penance. But in the Middle Ages, they certainly had it. In the Kabbalistic times, they definitely had it. Chaim Betal and others write about this. And that's a basic feature of the life of Shabtai Tzvi. His entire life, he fasted a lot. He did millions of times in the mikvah or in the ocean, in the sea. Um, he subjected himself to mortification of the flesh. So this is not a televangelist who behind the scenes is fressing and, you know, and, and, and making fun of the credulity of the believers. I mean, he did model this kind of behavior. I'll say it again. He wasn't living high in the hog at all. He lived a very, uh, you know, uh, pietistic lifestyle full of self-tortures, as we say today, which would be strange to us. They're not strange to the historian who's familiar with the pre-modern world, pre-modern Jewish world. This is very common. It was the Baal Shem Tov who sort of like did away with this hundred years later, but the time I'm talking about, this was very, this was very popular and, and very satisfying. Um, and so he, let's get this straight, Shabtai Tzvi throughout his career is a guy who fasts a lot. They talk about him going from Shabbos to Shabbos without eating. And, you know, I don't know how to do that, but, but they did it. Now, we know cases where people tried to do it and died, but we also know cases where people tried to do it and did do it. So it's, a, you know, you're, you're talking about a, a will and, you know, control of yourself and things like that. Um, he flagellates a lot in an attempt to crush the Gashmi cinema to earn revelation. Because if it's done in the context of uh, Kabbalah, it's not simply about getting rid of your sins. It's removing the impediment that any kind of materiality and maybe sin has to attaining higher enlightenment. Or let's, get, let, or let's be very frank, to getting prophecy. <laughs> let's cut the baloney. To getting messages from upstairs. And that's what it's all about. The thing that's blocked, anybody can do it, but you have to have the will. You could do it, I can do it, but we're fat, lazy Americans, yeah, we can't do it without our hamburger, yeah, so it'll never happen. These ways, they say like this, throw all that over the, the, the side, and you know, life consists of a journey to, to, to prophecy. So, he's not the only one that did it, but I'm trying to give you an idea of who he is. Uh, on the other hand, he's not a, he, he may not be a phony, but he's not a regular Joe either. You could interpret his irregularity, is, is what I'm talking about. He's not a regular person. Positively, and many young B'nai Torah do, and they gathered him as disciples. One of the ways he always attracted a following wherever he went was by modeling a real lifestyle. They said, Look at this guy, the guy does not eat. He can sit for hours and say, Tell him, or learn this, or that, and the other. We're watching him. You know what I mean? He's in the base matters all day long. The guy doesn't eat breakfast, doesn't eat lunch, he doesn't eat supper, and he's, like I said before, he doesn't have a cell phone. You know, say so he, he's really doing this kind of stuff. So you could say positively, they learn together Nigla and Nister, you know, Talmud is, or, or, or Kabbalistic, all, all kinds of different matters. They mo- follow his model and they get into fasting and toiling a lot, especially, he didn't like go to Mikvah, he liked to go to the, the ocean or the, the Aegean Sea because it's a seaport, you know, it's a beautiful coastline. Used to go there a whole lot. You see how this thing is, is, is forming. But you could also interpret his irregularity negatively or bizarrely. For example, he gets married at the age of 21, 
But within a very short time, the girl asks for a get because he never even attempted to consummate the marriage. He gets married a little bit later, exact same thing. He gets divorced in a, in a very short time. Uh, this leads to all kinds of speculations. You see? No, but, no, but it's true. By the way, long before Sigmund Freud was born, Yaakov Emden has a book called Sefer Torah Hakanos, where he exactly gives a Freudian interpretation of Shantai Tzvi. Um, not to, but that's a little reductionist. I'm not, it's, it's, I'm not, I'm not um, throwing it aside because I think it's a key element of who he was. But nevertheless, um, it's not all due to that sort of thing. Not to get too Freudian, we're told Shabtai Tzvi had an accident of some kind when he was young. Um, this is what his own followers write. When he was young, he had an accident which caused significant medical, medical damage to a sensitive portions of his anatomy. And this could explain his strange subsequent behavior. But as I said before, it's a little bit too reductionist. But there's no question there's something connected with, with, with all that. Because of his... Don't throw that away, because that's going to be a, a, a part of his career. Because of his piety, scholarship, good looks, and personal charisma, young yeshiva and kolel types form a circle around him. A chevra. So imagine a bunch of guys get together in the town, the city of Izmir, in a shul by themselves, every day. Sometimes they learn together in good weather in a forest outside of town. Sometimes on the pretty seashore away from everybody else. This is a cult. <laughs> Do you see it? They always get together. It's the same guys. Nobody else. They go to. They they learn, but it's always out. You know, in the forest away from everybody else. It's always doing their own thing. This is the beginning of a cult. I mean, why are you different? Why are you separate from everybody else? Either you're weird, which you'll never admit, or it's because everyone else is inferior to you in some way. It was clear that in a community like Izmir, which was a significant Mokum Torah, a group like this could not say, only we know how to learn Gemara, Rashi and Tosis. This wasn't true. Shabtai Tzvi knew how to learn, but he wasn't what you call a first-rank rabbinical scholar. You don't have to be. Second rank is also good. But the rabbis and people, there are guys in yeshivas and kolos who can learn better than him. So people aren't going to be attracted to this guy because that's going to be the most advanced, you know, like they went to Rakhine Brisker or something like that. So if they're not doing that, then it's got to be that they have something special, not in the Gemara Nigla area, but in another area. Now, Izmir was not Tzfat. You could make the argument that everyone else in town was inferior in Kabbalah, both in intellectual comprehension of the meaning of the texts and fulfilling the ascetic regimen that I've described, without which one cannot attain, gain higher understanding of Kabbalah. Like I said before, if you're not willing to throw away the hamburger and fast all week, week after week, and do this and do this and stay up at night and, you know, and, and go to mikvah all the time and that sort of thing, you're not going to merit it. As soon as you're talking about a group that keeps to itself and keeps itself superior in metaphysics to everybody else, it's a cult. Okay? It's a cult. In a cult, the leader is El Supremo. Agreed? That's the point of a cult. The leader is Mr. Perfect. In a Kabbalistic cult, we call that the Mashiach. Right? Steinzalt once said something that, that caught my attention. And he said... If you go to insane asylums, not houses, in uh, Christian countries and in Israel, you see one big difference because they have the same uh, kind of phenomena. But he says, in America, you go to asylum, everybody says, I guess, I'm God. 
You know, you go in Baltimore, you people say, I'm God. You go in Israel, a Jew, by definition, is culturally, you know, brainwashed. Nobody says, I'm God. But they're all the Mashiach. Which is interesting insight. And so if you're El Magnifico, and you know more than anybody else, then the people around you are, you know, beyond veneration. And this is what's expected. And by the way, it was inevitable that there's going to be a cult when the leader is not married. He didn't have a wife to say, take out the trash. <laughs> right? If he, would have, if, he would, if he would have been married, take it from me, <laughs> he, he wouldn't have had delusions of grandeur. Now, uh, <laughs> now, it's important to remember, I see some nervous laughs out there. Now, it's important to remember, Shabtai Si was not an insubstantial guy. He knew a lot, as I said before. And in another life, he would have made, an, another life, he would have made a great Magid. Right? Or a Hasidic Rebbe. A Marad da Agarata. He knew these... Uh, we, we have recorded uh, sermons and speeches, things he gave. He's very imaginative. He knows how to take psukim or passages in the Talmud or the Zohar and weave it this way or that way. He knows how to take psukim in the Bible, do gematrias all that sort of thing, the area of what they call the Magid. You understand this? Is a, there's a thing called the rabbi, and his job is to you know, deal with the boring legalities that we call the Gemara and the Postgim, and things like that. And then there's a guy supposed to give the speeches and bring it to the world of the Agatha. There's no question, had things been different, he would have been a successful and famous Magid of his type. So he was talented in that, in, in that area. On the other hand, uh, I think there's no question he clearly seems to have been, uh, I mean, seriously bipolar, with tremendous swings between manic behavior and debilitating depression, which he interpreted as divinely sent feelings. Now, this is true to the end of his life, and his own followers, along with everybody else, write about this constantly. They just don't call it with the 20th century secular terminology like uh, manic depressive, but uh, they say he had his high moods and his dark moods. There are times when the klipos and the demons are pursuing him, and he just retreats totally himself, and he's inaccessible. And then there are other times when he's on fire, they write, and he would sing songs and do crazy things, but also amid the crazy things would have brilliant insights, and then he would say a tefillah, and his face was on fire. Everybody writes about the fact that when he would sing a, a, a tilim, his face is on fire, you can't look at him, it's amazing. And then in, and then in between, you get the, the, the normal. And when in the normal, they say, why did you do that? And he said, I didn't, I didn't even know I did that. And I, you know, listen, I'm not, look, Manic depression is not funny. Okay? I mean, Chas Shalom and all that is not funny. Uh, but it's true. You know, they don't remember. You know, they're, 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 they're not responsible. And so, uh, in the 16th or 17th century, better yet, they don't talk about bipolar. right? They talk about different categories of analysis of the problem. And especially if somebody's into Kabbalah and a world of the metaphysics which is inhabited by good forces and bad forces of one kind or another. So the uh, dark times... But seriously, these issues, which his people talk about and others talk about, these high moments, these very dark moments... By the way, sometimes he's been depressed for a month, right? And sometimes they get him a moment called heora, when he's lit up, you know, as he gets illumination. And sometimes they're normal. And when he was normal, by the way, he was very charming and charismatic. He's a gentleman, a diplomat an impressive type individual, and then there are the other times. Um, these are not just divinely sent, as he sees it, and his followers eventually. 
The terrible waves of depression which recurred for the rest of his life were interpreted by himself and later by his followers as attacks and tortures by the dark forces to prevent him from reaching ever higher levels of comprehension of God and thereby bringing about the final redemption and the death of death. See, he's, as he sees it, he's doing such amazing things that eventually he's going to bring about the tikkun of the world. And one of the things that's going to happen is, and all evil will disappear. And evil doesn't want to disappear. And so they're fighting to prevent it. I mean, that's their job. They're fighting to prevent this. And the way they're doing it is by attacking the mind, literally playing mind game with this poor fellow. Now, either, either that's true or it's not. <laughs> but if it is true, it's, it's quite a cosmic statement. Now, um, on the 21st of Sivan in 1648, that's the summer, right? Just finished Sivan not long ago. She was time. At the age of 22, in a manic mood, in Izmir, in Turkey, he's not married, he gets a dream that he's the Mashiach. I think it's a culmination of everything we've been talking about. Yeah, because this, this is a person who, in some respects, has to be pitied. I mean, let's put it this way, had a lot of pain in life. And like I said before, I think we all know people and this and that and the other struggle with these issues. It is not funny at all. And didn't have any medicine in those days either. So it was not funny at all. And um, um, the, the culmination of all this, and, and in between he's learning Zohar, and he's learning Sefer Kana. He gets messy, he's a Mashiach. And as I said, I think it's the culmination of all that's going on. On the other hand, this is exactly the middle of the month of Sivan in 1648 is exactly when news hits Turkey of the Cossack massacres going in at that time and the arrival of the first wave of Jewish slaves. 1648, as you know, is Xeris Here's where, look, right here is Izmir, where Shabtai Tzvi is living. Here, not that far away, is where Khmelnytsky is killing everybody. Uh, as you can see, this area is the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth where the Ukrainians are going wild and shechting and torturing all the Jews. Over here is the continent of Crimea. These are the Muslims. At that time, were allies with Khmelnytsky uh, to fight the Poles. Again, uh, the, the Khmelnytsky's uh, great accomplishment was to forge an alliance between the Ukrainians and the Muslims on the one hand against the Catholic Poles. Um, and if you're Jewish at that time, if you fall in the hands of the Ukrainians, they literally slice you to bits. And if you fall in the hands of the Muslims... If you're old and decrepit, they kill you right away. But if you're not, and you have any kind of value whatsoever in the slave market, then you're okay, because what they're going to do is take you over here and send you here, and then take you down to here and sell you in the slave markets of the Ottoman Empire, which is good for them because there you have Jewish communities. And um, eventually the Jewish communities get over-swamped with slaves. They can't, they can't afford to buy everybody out. But in the beginning, they could. And uh, this, was, this is life in 1648 to 1652. If you're a Sephardi, you get it? Um, every community, I've talked about this before, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. Every Jewish community in history in the old days had a pig and shoeing committee. Because that's, that's what life is. And, you know, if Berlin doesn't handle the shoeing from Poland, Poland won't handle the shoeing from Berlin, so to speak. So everybody's got to have a patient. But on the other hand, funds are limited in any kahil. You raise so and so much money from taxes. You, you can't spend endless money on it. So there's a budgeting process of a kehillah in which there's an executive board everywhere in the world. And the executive board, for arguments, let's say they're taking 100,000 ducats as, 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 as Jewish taxes here. 
Well, 50, 60, let's say 50,000 goes to the king. I mean, that's, that's the way it goes. You take off the taxes off the top. From the other 50, you spend all the money for the Jewish community. It's a, a lot of needs in the Jewish community, right? Uh, the shuls, uh, the Chabra Kedisha, uh, the Kashras, uh, you know, all kind of things like that. Uh, they didn't spend money on Chinuf, but everything else they spend money on. And uh, the Arab, you know, all, and, and, and the local anti-Semitism to deal with that. So you have 50,000, it doesn't go that far. How much can you, can you, can you put aside for Pidyan Shulim? The answer is, I'm just making this up, let's say 10,000 ducats. Okay, 10,000 ducats goes as far as it goes. And, here, and typically speaking, the Mediterranean, the Black Sea is full of pirates all the time for hundreds and hundreds of years, and pirates capture ships, and among the people they capture are Jews, and the pirates will dump the Jews at the next port, and there will be usually a Jewish community at that port, and the Jewish community has that 10000 to spend on uh, you know, ransoming off captives, which means, by the way, that they find themselves in that Sophie's Choice type situation, which you have to decide who you're going to spend the money on, correct? And you, know, you have young people, you have old people, you have this, that, and the other. The uh, Talmud has a pecking order of who goes first, but you know, that doesn't mean they always listen to it. And uh, if you're Shabtai Tzvi, this is the hot news that's going throughout the Sephardic communities in the summer of 1648. And we know that the year Tach, Tavches, was one of those messianic years that people have been talking about forever. I mentioned the last two classes that I gave, last two lectures over here. Everybody took a guess when the Mashiach is coming. And a lot of it has to do with Gematria's Katsdi B'chayayim Ebnei Benos Ches. Ches is Tavches, right? Is, is uh, you know, uh, what do you call it? 1648 backwards, and various other combinations. Zos is also, uh, you know, Tavches, isn't it? Okay? Bishnas Hayovel HaZos, Toshu Vishel El Makomo. You know, people darsh in all the ways that they did. And so many Jews around the world, especially in, uh, I mean, anywhere in the world, thought 1648 is going to see the coming Mashiach. And instead came the Holocaust. So, you know, that blew that one away, or maybe it didn't. Or maybe it didn't. Maybe, especially if you're living in 1648, maybe it's the beginning of the Messianic process. It's what's called the Hevli Mashiach, the Ekvesed Mashiach, which we're told will be very bloody. We talked about that before, right? It's go, 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 go. Oh, then it fits like a package. Done it. It's in 1648, Mashiach comes, and all of a sudden, 100,000 Jews get shechted in, in, in the Ukraine. Oh, it's, it's Mashiach time. I'm simply trying to show you don't be surprised as a guy who has dreams and bipolar and this and that and the other and is learning the Zohar all the time and is thinking about himself as the head of a cult might say like this, it's Takir Mashiach. The Ikvus the Chevli Mashiach will be in Poland and the appearance of the Messiah, Izmir. Could be, could be. So I know this is very strange from the way we think it's the audience in Baltimore in, in what, July of uh, 2015. We live in a different world with different glasses. But your job, whenever I give a talk here, is to take off the glasses, put on a separate set of glasses, try to understand how people saw it at that time. And that's what I'm trying to do. So, um, look, uh, dear Smelnitsky, let's go to the next one. Here's how people imagine Shabtai Tzvi. Right? He's, he, he's a Jewish Khmelnitsky, riding on a horse, and he'll lead the Jewish armies. The Messi, he's a Mashiach. He's going to be on, uh, you know, he'll lead the Jews out of the liberation. Oh, boy, I'm sure they say like this. He's going to gather the Jews. He's going to go to Ukraine, kill all the Cossacks, kill all the Tatars. Then it's the turn of the Pope. <laughs> and then we go down the line. That's how they imagine it, you see? Now, um, 
Nothing really happened out of all this. Because at the end of the day, this is a dream a single individual guy had. And the story of Shabtai Tzvi is not in 1648, but 18 years later. But it's a foreshadowing of the fact that in his mind, at least, these waves are surging. And they kind of make sense if you buy into certain axioms. That's the problem. Uh, but he does start to do, in his manic moods, certain very weird things. One of them is, he goes to Shoal, and uh, remember, he's a Talmud Chacham, you know, he has a place in Shoal and all the rest of it, and you start pronouncing the name of God, the UK Bavke. Oh, you're not allowed to do that. Oh, really? The Gemara says, in the time of Mashiach, then they'll be able to do it. Well, guess what? <laughs> I can do it. You understand? You know, to the, we don't usually pronounce Yud and the Hay and the Bavke, and, 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 uh, but it, it, the Gemara says over there in that passage, in the Mashiach time, that'll be different. So, now, that's it. Now, the rabbi of the community and the others rebuke him. And they say, what are you doing? I mean, you can just imagine a scandal something like this makes. But by this time, they see it as a bipolar thing. And he's into one of his spasms. And if a nevik person would wander into one of our shuls and do the same thing, especially if the person was a learned rabbi who had problems, it's more of a nevik than anything else. He wouldn't go in and shoot him. I mean, I've known in my time, and some of you have also, people who were serious scholars and had, you know, uh, different psychological and other issues. And, uh, you know, if they ever did anything weird, you know, people, you know, if you, 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 you ignore it to some degree, if possible. To complicate matters, when he wasn't manic or depressive, he was normal. At such times, he honestly could not explain what made him do the weird things. So they said to him, well, you, what did you yesterday on Friday night, you came to the show and you said, name Hashem. He said, I don't know why he did it. And he didn't. It was the truth. This demonstrated to people he really was normal, but had spells, unfortunately, which made him do crazy things, for which the guy cannot be held responsible because that's the way it goes. We don't hold people today responsible for things they do when they're in certain psychological states. It's sad more than anything else. Um, but his small group of disciples interpret it his way and not the bipolar way. They don't say we're following a guy with serious issues. This is the 17th century. They see him as a superior Kabbalist, sadly under attack by demonic forces trying to prevent him from an Aliyah Ruchani, which is known in the Bible. What does it say about King Saul? Right? He exhibited these, these tendencies, but the Torah says specifically it wasn't that he was cracking up. Ruach Hashem that this is part of the punishment of Saul after he failed to wipe out a Moloch. So, uh, did he crack up? Yes, he cracked up. That was the punishment. Meaning it wasn't what we call clinical or something like this. That he, this was sent divinely. So that's already a high madrega, so to speak. <laughs> and he's another King Saul. And uh, consequently, when a year later, in 1650 or so, Shabtai goes toggling in the ocean or the sea, as he did all the time, not to mikvah, and he almost drowns because he got caught in an undertow. His escape is to his group accorded cosmic significance and his followers make it a Purim, the 16th of Kislev. Right? Tesain Kislev. Which is Shabbatian. That's like, like one of the most foremost holidays. And by the way, it's preceded by a tiny ancestor. You know I mean? That was the day before when the 15th of Kislev you have to fast. They model it all these because that's let me put it this way. You say that was a dumb swimming accident. No. 
it wasn't a dumb swimming accident. They were out to get him, and miraculously he was saved. You get it? The dark forces, the Sitra Akra, was out to get him, but it was saved. And so it's how you interpret the phenomenon. Um, the thing is, if he would have been a loner, a guy by himself, the community would simply have tolerated him as a nebuch, a nut, particularly if his family was well-to-do and well-connected, which they were. The problem is he was not a loner, he had disciples. This gave things a different aspect. It made it a cut, a sect, or a cult, as we would call it today. This threatened the Izmir community, as it was attracting regular people, and was ruining them. So people, I'm sure, came to the rabbi and said, I guess, you got to do something. My son now joined this group. My son is 15, 16, or 14, something like this. And, he's, and, and I can't talk to him. And, you know, he doesn't listen to us. That's happened with a cult, right? And uh, Rabbi Iskofa, Rabbi, Rabbi Arla Papa, Rabbi Chaim Ben Veniste, you know, we'll, we'll do something over here. Now, um, all this is, as I say, profoundly the situation. In one of his moods, he tells his followers he's going to make the sun stand still at Joshua. He goes to the hills outside of town, and he pronounces, Shemesh begivon dom v'erech v'ayalom. Okay? Sun should stand still. Of course, nothing happens. But that's the breaking point for the rabbis of the city. And they summon him and they threaten him. They say, if you keep this up, we'll put you in harem. They got him in a manic mood. And so he says, you put me in harem, I'll put you in harem. Katani avin mi mosni avicha. Like, like Rechavim said to the Jewish people, my little finger, meaning, my little finger is fatter than your waist. I'm smarter than all of you put together, and I put you in harem. This is not America, where the young can get away with any kind of chutzpah you want. And everybody says, this is not cute. This is the old school. In the old school, if you go and curse and threaten the, the rabbis of the city, you're out of there. And so, uh, let's put it this way. <laughs> the chief rabbi, uh, Rabbi Yosef Iskava, he's Rosh Yosef from the tour, uh, was a smart cookie. And he can see, as they say in the Talmud about the Ben Sora Murrah, Nidin al-Shem Sofa, he saw this is, going, this is going bad. This guy's going to be a lot of trouble. And it's a, not a solvable problem. And so he wants to get him bumped off. That's how they handled matters in the 1500s, 1600s. Okay? That's what they do. Uh, but in the, well, in, in the end, it would have been a better idea. You see? Now, um, in the end, they don't. He gets simply kicked out of town. But like in contemporary abuse cases nowadays, what's the number one problem? They throw the guy out of town, but they what? They don't tell anybody else in the other town what the problem is. Right? He's fired from being a Rebbe here, but he ends up over there. He fired from being a shaykhid here, right? He fired from being a shaykhid here, and he ends up, he ends up something, oh, I can tell you, to, he, he ends up being a shaykhid somewhere else. So he's out of town, but they don't tell, so the other communities don't know. Plus the shans, plus shows, nothing changes. So off he goes to Salonika, which is not that far away. Here is Izmir, Smyrna, and here's Salonika. So you see it's just across the Aegean, I guess it is. And, uh, you know, these are the leading Jewish communities of the Sephardim in uh, Turkey. This is the 1600s when the Sephardic culture, very strong, the rabbinic culture, very strong. Salonika, I mean, I don't know, to, to, to use Ashkenazi, to think of like Vilna or something like that. You know, I mean, there's a ear of Ambi Israel with many uh, schools and academies and great, uh, you know, learning and all that sort of thing. So he goes off to Salonika. The uh, community has to go off by himself. <laughs> All the parents take their kids and say, you're not going. And for a while, when he lands in Salonika, he's in a normal mood. At such times, he's charming and charismatic. He attracts a new set of disciples. But, and after all, I mean, they're impressed. He doesn't eat. He goes to mikvah. He fasts a lot. He learns it you know, 24 hours at a time, 36 hours at a time. 
But then the mania eventually kicks in, and he starts doing the Shema uh, Farsh again, you know, pronouncing God's name and all the rest of it. And to top it off, he invites, invites a bunch of rabbis, because Salonika was a city full of famous rabbis, uh, to a meal in which he has a, a ceremony in which he marries a Sefer Torah. Okay? And as he brings out a Sefer Torah over there, and he actually you know, puts a ring on, he says, I write Mekodeshish and all this kind of stuff. He's in manic mood. You know, I don't know why people look at me with a crinkled face. I mean, you know, this is what people can do. And, uh, uh, by the way, as soon as the rabbi Salana can see that, they say, you are hitting the road, baby, this time. You know, <laughs> we got no time for this. You know, uh, and so out of Salonika he goes, but once again, they don't tell. He says, why tell, you know? And so he goes to Constantinople. Okay? Uh, but in Constantinople, same thing. He starts saying the same flourish. Here he does a new shtick. He, he, he goes to the market, he buys a big fish, he wraps it up in baby clothes, he puts it in a crib, he walks in the street, pushing a carriage, and singing Spanish lullabies to it. Okay? Now for believers, of course, that means like this, it's Mazel Duggan. It's the Zodiac, it's Pisces, it means the Geul is going to come in, the, you know, in February, and all that kind of stuff. Okay, what does it mean to everybody else? Cuckoo, okay? <laughs> you see? And now, so it's, it's very strange. So here, I'm trying to show you what a complex individual this is, and yet, you know, how do people, you know, kind of react to it? He celebrates the Shalash Regalim all in a week. Notice, tonight he sits in the sukkah, and the tomorrow morning he bench a lulav. The following night is a seder. The next night he does tikkun uh, shivuos. These are just weirdisms. Now you see, the Jewish community is used to apostasy. The Jewish community is dealing with heresy. The Jewish community is dealing with renegades, malshinim, <laughs> thieves, whores, bandits. That kind of stuff is the good old, you know, that's the way it goes. Like the Rambam says, you'll never get rid of that kind of stuff. This is different. Agree? This is different. Would you, what I just re- said, would you regard that as heretical? It's cuckoo. You see? And yes, but what do you do? Um, he celebrates the Shal Shugam. He has a vision that tells him to do sins and recite a new bracha. Right? You know, we say in the morning, Matir Asurim, which literally, many people, by the way, get this wrong. Matir Asurim means he frees those who are imprisoned. Or if you wish, he loosens the bonds. Right? Asur in Hebrew means, literally means tied up. So Matir means to untie. But he said, no, he threw the Matir Isurim, you know. He permits that which is forbidden. Okay? And again, it's, it's like, weird. Okay? To go eat on a, on a fast day or something like that, or eat something, trafe. I don't think he actually ate trafe, as I recall. Um, later on, the Sabathians did, but I don't think he did that. But he, you know, ate at weird times, like on a fast day or something like that. Or maybe he'll eat chametz on Pesach, and he'll say, you know, you make a bracha matiris surim. What do you do with this? Here, now, this is Constantinople. This is the capital of the Turkish Empire. The Turks are tough, and so the rabbinical courts are tough. So if he goes in the street and starts eating this and making a bracha like that and saying God's name, he's flogged. Okay, they still had basins at that time. He gets malchus, as they call it here. He's kicked out of town, but again, without warning anybody else. Isn't that amazing? So it's an old attitude that uh, didn't start today. Uh, he travels around Greece, because that's the area over there of the map. I mean, he was in uh, Izmir, and then he went to Salonika, and he went to Constantinople, and now he threw him out of here. His family was around originally from the area of Greece, and the uh, Morea, as they call it. So, you know, he goes there for uh, quite a while, running from place to place. Uh, and so you'd be in a town, and this guy comes for Shabbos, and nobody knows what to do with him, you know, in the sense that 
He's going to eat. He does eat on Shabbos because a Kabbalist does not fast on Shabbos. You eat four meals, right? Shalashudas and also the, the Lamaka. But then you don't eat. And you, uh, as I say, stay up for whole times without, without sleeping and learning. And you uh, go uh, for, over and over and over again to the river for the mikvah. And you do this and you do that. But then a few days later he's gone. So it just gives you something to talk about. After all, there wasn't any TV in those days or books or anything. Um, eventually, he goes to Israel. Eretz Israel. But not directly. He goes to the sea route. I want to remind you there was a constant war going on at that time throughout the Eastern Mediterranean. Crete was the main theater of operations. The Republic of Venice held Crete. The Ottomans were sending army after army to conquer Crete. The Venetians were sinking the navy. The Ottomans were sinking the counter navy. So if you want to go to, uh, to Egypt, it's not Pushet. And so he has to go in a, like a very roundabout way. But rather than go directly to Israel, go first to Egypt. And when he gets to Egypt, um, he gets to Alexandria. And in Alexandria, it so happens to be that at the time he landed, he was a normal. Because these people can't control and so he was a normal for a while. And he's, uh, as I say, he's learned, he's charming, he's astute, he's charismatic, charismatic, and he makes a chassid from the one guy that counts in Egypt, which is El Supremo. Rafal Yosef, he's the Chalebi, or the Nagid, as they used to call it. If you know how Egypt worked, uh, from way back when, in the early Middle Ages, uh, after all, Egypt is the headquarters of the pharaohs, ancient time, they like top-down government, correct? Centralized, top-down government. And so the Jews were expected to have a similar pattern, and so the king or the ruler would appoint the head Jew, and that guy controls, he's the dictator for all the other Jews. And at the time, excuse me, the time we're talking about, it was Rafal Yosef, who was a Syrian Jew, who was a very from guy, and is a renowned Baal and he himself was a Lurianic Kabbalist who used to fast a lot. And he was a multimillionaire, and his family, they say, ate uh, wonderfully. He never ate, and uh, he had 50 rabbis every day at the table, and he supported yeshivas, and you know, he's a very uh, interesting individual, and he didn't oppress the Jewish community, at least more than necessary, uh, I mean, in terms of the taxes. And so here's a person, and he was, by the way, uh, in charge of the, he was like the secretary of the treasury of the governor of Egypt, so it's a high position. See, he's, he's the Jew that counts, and he thinks this guy that landed off the boat is great. You understand? He thinks he's great. And so um, here, Shabtai Tzvi, as long as he's there, he lives the life of Riley. Uh, I'm just giving an idea. I mean, we don't know enough about this. It's fascinating. Who else was 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 at his table being supported at that time? The son of Chaim Vital, or Shmuel Vital, who has the manuscripts that they won't let anybody publish. <laughs> it's. I mean, if you want to do a novel, here it is. Two guys at the table. One guy making up his own kabbalah. The other guy has the original stuff, but he won't let anybody see it. And then there's the rich guy who's a Lurian Kabbalist, but it's too firm of a guy to go and steal or take anything from anybody. It's the stuff of, uh, of, of movies. Uh, apparently, they regard his Mishagasin as spiritual happenings. I mean, he does end up doing some crazy things over there, but it all depends how you look at it. Since they regard him as a positive individual, if he says the Shema Mephorosh, must be some Kabbalistic reason, you know, because I see he's not just, he's not a Mechal Shabbos. You know, he's not a lowlife. He doesn't go eat trave, he doesn't do this, he doesn't chase women, he doesn't do you know, all the sorts of things that sinners typically do. So then this, the Mishagas is a, is a Kabbalistic Mishagas. And then it's, it's, it's Mashahum Yuchad. It singles them out as somebody special. Okay. After a couple months, he moves to Yerushalayim. 36 years old, 1642. He's still not married. 
He's in a normal mood when he reaches Jerusalem. That's always his mazo. <laughs> right? When he shows him Yushalayim, he's in a normal mood. This was, in 1662, a very interesting period in the history of Israel, of Jerusalem. It's the era of Rabbi Yaakov Chagiz, if that name means anything. But I guess it doesn't. Uh, who was a kind of a Torah Zionist, you might say. Uh, this is the 17th century. Yaakov is a, is a Moroccan rabbi, Sephardic. He's a big Talmud Chacham. And he has a plan to uh, try to revive a Jewish settlement in Israel by building super yeshiva. And then attracting a lot of people in there, and then they'll attract others. They'll attract others. And he goes to Livorno, to Leghorn, in Italy. That's over here, which was the rich Sephardic community in Italy. That's where he had the millionaires. And he gets the Reichmans of Leghorn, the Vega family, to bankroll big money to set up a uh, nice-sized yeshiva with a good endowment in Jerusalem. And he moves there in 1658. And it's actually a very interesting period in the history of... of um, let me put it this way. This is when the modern Aliyah begins for the Sephardim, not the Ashkenaz, for the Sephardim. And he builds up something impressive over there. Uh, his students include, uh, you know, the Prichada, Shemesh, a lot, a, lot, a, lot, a, lot a lot of very big people and all the rest of it. This person very big in, in uh, Gomorrah. He's a very uh, famous posek. Uh, if you're in the rabbi business, if you're in the rabbi business, you'll know Yaakov Chagiz. He's the one who says he can drink water on, on Yom Kippur. He's a shalos and two with halachas ketanas. Uh, so that's why rabbis, if they're finding a situation where somebody medically is required to drink, they will some drink water. At least according to the the, the Yaakov Giz, it's, it's it's not a violation. You understand? Um, so he, you know, he's, what I'm trying to say is, it's a serious posek. And now this guy shows up, who obviously stood in good with the rich guy in Egypt. They haven't heard that he was kicked out of Izmir, or out of Salonika, or out of Constantinople. They never heard he walked a fish down the road singing lullabies. You understand? They didn't see all this sort of thing. And he is, for a fair while that he's there, in the normal phase. So he joins the yeshiva, and they welcoming, they want people from scholars over the place to move to Israel to build up the population. He learns with others at Chavrusa. He begins to attract, as always, some disciples who want to learn Kabbalah with them, because the yeshiva is not a Kabbalistic yeshiva, it's a regular yeshiva. Here he resumed his former ascetic practice of frequent fastings and other penances. Many see this as proof of his extraordinary piety. That's always how he got people. And I'll say it again, you can't simply say it's a fake or something like this because nobody goes without eating for a week just to you know, fake people out. You either really believe this stuff or you don't. He was said to have a good voice, um, and so he always sang Tehillim all night long. Hear what I said? He sang Tehillim all night long, and sometimes Spanish love songs. Because No, 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 wait a second. He's a Sephardi, and in the Sephardi culture, it's not my culture, but you go to Seattle and these kind of places, they're into, all, I mean, it sounds funny, they sing these achasanas, you know? It's strange to ask, you know, they sing, it's all oh, my beautiful dove, and this and that and the other, and, uh, and he interprets it, of course, Kabbalistically, the dove is not a bird, it really refers to Claudius, you know, all that kind of stuff, and so he just kept, he's not your typical boring rabbi that walks down the street, dime a dozen, in Yerushalayim, you know? And uh, he gives mystical interpretation. He, he attracts crowds of listeners. At other times, he prays and cries at the graves of tzaddikim. He goes to Hebron. He, deliver, he, he gives out candy to the children of the street. And he gathers a circle of adherents. Well, on the other hand, he's not going to stand out as an outstanding master of Kabbalistic knowledge in Jerusalem at that time. In the time of Yaakov Hagiz, Yerushalayim is the headquarters of Lurianic Kabbalism. 
Tzfat disappeared because there was a war between the governor of Tzfat and the governor of Damascus, and the Jewish community in Tzfat was wiped out. So in the time I'm talking about, the Jews are living in Yerushalayim, they're not living anywhere. Um, and people like Rabbi Yaakov Tzemach and others who are famous, Mukabolim and Talmidim, Rabbi Chaim Vital, and others, are all in Yerushalayim. But when he gets his manic moods, because eventually it kicks in, even Yerushalayim, they view it as Nebuch mental illness. Though he seems to have been flogged on a number of occasions. But it's strange. They don't... I say, no, he's not your typical heretic. He's not, he's not apostatizing. He's not joining another religion. He's not doing... He's not... It doesn't say he's going to Shabbos. He doesn't, you know, he does strange things. And so they don't know what to do with it. Um, but then they know that after a while, these crazy moods leave him. And, of course, when he, if he's depressed, he's locked in a room, you don't see him. And if he's normal, you see him in there. So you say, you know, he's a very good guy. Nebuchadnezzar, he has once in, every once in a while, he has these attacks. That's what we say today. I'm not going to just see it. If, you have a, if they were nice people, and they were nice people, you were Shalim. They say, listen, the guy's a Talmud all the rest of it. He has issues, you know. So, you know, we, we try to, you know, if he screams in the middle of the show, don't say nothing. It's like that. That's, that's how they treated him. At that time, after a year or so, the Turkish governor, as was common, jacks up the taxes very heavily to hurt the Jews. Like doubles and triples the taxes overnight. The Jewish community is desperate. And they send Shabtai Tzvi, this new guy who showed up, back to Egypt to be a fundraiser, because we heard that he was a favorite with the rich guy in Egypt, which he was, Rafael Yosef. And so he goes, and he raises a ton of money from the guy, and he sends it back to Yerushalayim, and he remains in Egypt. By now, we're told, in Egypt, the waves of depression are so debilitating that he forgot about being a Mashiach. Okay? It just got him so much, he basically gave it up. And if the story had ended now, it would be interesting on a human being level, but wouldn't have a national Jewish significance. But two events in 1665 stimulate or revive his messianic pretensions. His strange marriage and his meeting with Nathan of Gaza. These two events launch an international spasm of Jewish frenzy, but that's something we'll attack next time. Good night. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.